the elders have been doing some, some thinking about this topic, about marriage, divorce, remarriage, and church leadership. I know that you sometimes wonder what elders do in their meetings. Um, we don't think about those topics every week, but those are some of the kinds of things that we deal with. Um, not to be divisive, not to throw topics around carelessly, but that we are continually thinking about how are we doing here at Fellowship Bible Church and are we functioning, are we thinking, are we living biblically. We handed out a document that is a position paper on this. It's um, not going to be included in our doctrinal statement or in our bylaws, but it is, an, it is an official, somewhat of an official statement that this is what our elders believe is the position that we should hold at Fellowship Bible Church. It is a yellow copy. It's a single sheet, one side. I think that you'll appreciate it and that you should read it. It is available on the little island uh, in the foyer as well as in a plastic rack in the foyer annex, and if you're interested in reading that document, um, I think you'll find it helpful. And I, if I have a minute during the service, uh, during the message time, I'm going to try to reference parts of that document as well. Um, if you have your notes nearby, I want you to um, track along because it will help for listening and for accuracy and communication. I want to comment on just a couple things. One of the reasons that I wanted to do this is because handing out a document like this that represents somewhat of a shift in position traditionally here at Fellowship Bible Church can be divisive. And it is not our desire to be divisive, but it is our desire to lead biblically. And so I thought that communication in follow-up of last Sunday night would be helpful. Um, and I also want to comment before we dig into the sermon time that I recognize that in our audience today, I'm confident there are any number of folks who've experienced divorce. Many have experienced remarriage. I acknowledge, and in my pastoral ministry and observation, recognize how difficult divorce can be, how difficult on the family, how hard it is. I recognize that people don't wake up normally in the morning and say, how can I destroy my marriage? Usually don't do that. But sin has a way of creeping in. Sin can destroy and disrupt even Christian households. Some of you, your divorce or your divorce and remarriage have been experienced before salvation even. Others of you, for any number of reasons, and there's always a story, there's always complicated details. Sin has a way of doing that. Uh, you've been to the cross. You've repented. You've forsaken. You've, you've tried to get your priorities straight. And you're trying to move forward. And I want you to know... We do not believe that divorce is the unpardonable sin in Fellowship Bible Church. It is a sin that has residuals, though, isn't it? No matter how you, how you package it, it just has tentacles and leftovers as a house that was once a unit has exploded. Perhaps one of the best ways to understand why God says, I hate divorce, and, and those of you who've been through divorce, you hate it as well. And children of divorce, you hate it. You know how it just it explodes the house. Sin just, just destroys and divides and is devastating. We think back to the beginning when God ordained marriage. You don't have to turn there. But in Genesis chapter 2, God is, is ordaining marriage between one man and one woman. That heterosexual, one male, one female, together for life is God's plan and in the creative order. And it's clearly stated in Genesis chapter 2. 
There is where that verse is that many of you are familiar. It's often quoted at weddings. It says, and a man shall leave his father and his mother. And by the way, if you're not ready to leave your father and mother, young men, you're not ready to be married. So don't move into their basement or their attic. Get your own place. You leave your father and your mother and you cleave unto your wife and the two shall become one flesh. The reason that the divorce is so devastating is because that that word in Hebrew, that idea of the two shall become one flesh. If you were to literally translate the Old Testament Hebrew into English, and it's a good translation that we have in our Bible, two shall become one flesh. It's the idea, idea, a literal rendering would be composite unity. Parts that become one. You can understand this by thinking about plywood. You know plywood. You run to Home Depot. You need, what do you need? You buy, you can go up to the guy and say, hey, I need, I need eight layers of wood that have been glued together. No, you need one sheet of plywood. What is plywood is made up of wood and they've taken the wood and they've cut it very thinly and unrolled the log and they've laid it out and they've crisscrossed the grain and they've glued it and they've pressed it and it makes a wonderful product. Man, plywood is an excellent product to work with and it's many layers glued together to make one piece. Composite unity. The illustration works for us even further in understanding divorce That when God said, and the two shall become one flesh, that's a spiritual unity, that's a physical unity, that is a new composite. They are one now, and it is intended to be for life. And you don't wake up in the morning and say, you know, let's go downtown and and find some guy we don't even know in a black robe, and let's let him just divide up our household. Let's let him divide up our children. You don't do that, but that's what happens, and it destroys. And it would be along the line of taking that sheet of plywood and get your skill saw out, rip a strip of it, and, and then get your little hand axe and set that plywood up on edge and, and you're out there trying to split plywood. You don't split plywood. You can't do it. It just flakes apart. It, it breaks apart. It just destroys it. It's devastating. Why? Because it was a composite that is now a unity and it is not intended to be separated. And that's the same thing that when God ordained marriage and a husband and a wife come together as one, it was never intended to be ripped apart or destroyed. And so I do want to acknowledge that that I understand and often speak with folks who are going through difficulties in their marriages and that divorce is a horrific thing. It is a reality of our world and it is a reality even in church world of what families have experienced. The question that I want to deal with today, both in follow-up of last Sunday's business meeting and also to put on our internet this message because if there's questions about this document it might be helpful for folks who are here or even not here to be able to re-listen to this and study it a little bit further the question is what do we do about people who've been divorced who are now living for the lord who want to be involved in church leadership now let me assure you and we're looking at our notes now that god cares about church leadership One thing that is clear when you open your Bible is that God cares about who's in charge of his people, who's in charge of his churches. We don't have time to pursue it. It's actually very interesting. And some of the more, some of the more dramatic and interesting stories of the Bible are about how God has dealt with people who were unqualified for spiritual leadership and they tried to lead spiritually. He did things like open up the ground and swallow them. He did things like throw down fireballs and disintegrate them. I mean, it's just incredible. It makes him drop dead in front of the church. 
God cares about who leads in the local church and who leads his people spiritually. This is something that is very, very important. And I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And it is here that we have as clear of a passage in all the Bible of the criteria, the standards for who is allowed to lead spiritually in the local church. Let's read our text this morning, and um, we'll read verses 1 through 7. Follow along. I'm reading out of the ESV. When we begin to read, um, as uh, translated in the English Standard Version that I'm using, ESV, it's going to use the word overseer. That word works well in our English language. Someone who is seeing over. They're overseeing the flock. They're a shepherd. The idea might be translated, that Greek word might be translated bishop or elder in your Bible. Those three words can work together. Overseer, bishop, elder. They are essentially synonymous terms. They have a little bit of nuance difference, but that word can be translated in that, in that way. And it means spiritual overseer of the church, the spiritual leadership of the church. Let's read our text. Text now, 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So it's a high calling. It's a noble task. Therefore, verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach. Here's our phrase, the husband of one wife. He must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, verse 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. What an interesting passage of scripture. I want you to notice that almost immediately and looking at our notes high on the list of qualifying characteristics for church leaders is the requirement to be the husband of one wife. It begins with that umbrella statement, he must be above reproach, above accusation. Immediately then it turns to the home front and it points at his marriage and it says he must be the husband of one wife. Uh, you would notice if you looked up 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, which is further down in this passage, or if you were to look in Paul's instruction to Titus, and by the way, both Titus and Timothy were young pastors, and the senior ap apostle Paul, getting close to the end of his lifetime, is giving instruction to these young pastors as to how to deal with issues in the church. And one of the things he's pointing at is who is qualified to lead. And he gives a similar list in Titus chapter 1, You'll notice there in verse 6, he also, and in 1 Timothy 3, it's required in Titus 1, 6, it's repeated for elders to be the husband of one wife. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, it is also emphasized that a deacon, the other's office, there are two offices for the church, the elders and the deacons, and both offices are, it is emphasized immediately on their list that they're to be the husband of one wife. And by the way, let me just make a comment. Some of you aren't going to like this comment. We can talk about it later or we can fight about it later. Um, but don't get up and walk away. Just hear me out. I'm going to just touch on another very interesting topic concerning spiritual leadership in the church. But it is reflected in this passage. 
And that is that at Fellowship Bible Church, and our understanding of Scripture would be that spiritual leadership in the church, the role of elder and the role of deacon, is a male leadership. That is not always a widely held view in our world today. I fully recognize that. But there's many good reasons why God has established that. And I can show you that in God's word. That's another whole message that perhaps we should follow up on soon. But the idea is that even as we read our text today, what we see is he is to be the husband of one wife. It's in the context of giving instruction to the head of the household, the male. It doesn't say he's to be the wife of one husband. She is to be the wife of one husband. And that's just a reflection of, and this is only one point, of many that argue for male leadership in the local church. So don't get upset, but that would be our position. Many of you are aware of that. And there's lots of good reasons why our God of design and our God of order does it. Namely, he calls the man, the male, to lead on the home front. And that is really clear in Scripture. And what he doesn't do is he doesn't ask you to go to church then and flip the leadership role. That would create chaos and disorder. And so there's a number of reasons why God did what he did. And I wanted to just mention that in passing. Now listen, in our culture, back to our notes, we live in a time where marriage is being maligned and redefined and it is being ignored. And so I think for many reasons, not the least, just to reinforce God's view of biblical marriage, this is an important message. And it's important for our young people as the world presses in and, and the marriage issue just explodes in the world around us. But our question this morning is specifically this. What does it mean when we read that to be above reproach, one must be then the husband of one wife? You see that in verse 2? Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Then what does it mean? Immediately he says he must be the husband of one wife. There are a variety of viewpoints on this topic. And by the way, you'll note that I noted that this message is lifted out of our First Timothy series that I preached about four years ago in 2012. And I thought that it would be useful this morning following our business meeting last week. And there was not disruption at that meeting, by the way, but I just want to bring clarity to the topic. There are a variety of viewpoints when people see this phrase, husband of one wife. The first, and we're going to click through these fairly rapidly. Um, They can be, some of them are worth talking about more, but let me just click off so we recognize that there are a number of ways of looking at that phrase. The first is um, that it would be taken that an elder or a deacon is required to be married, is required to be married. That is, they read that and they see that list of qualifications and that he's, that he has the husband of one wife and therefore he must be married if he's going to serve in the diaconate or the eldership, the bishopry of the church. If he's going to be a spiritual overseer, he must be married. Some would even argue where it says that it talks about children, that he must have children. So even if he's married but doesn't have children, then he's not qualified. I would not hold to that position. I think that there is somewhat of an argument there, but I don't think that it stands up. To, to biblical scrutiny. The simplest argument that I would give back is for one thing, the Apostle Paul would have then disqualified himself from spiritual leadership in the local church. And I don't think he did that. He never qualified himself as evidently a single man. It also, in your blank there on your paper, would have disqualified Jesus, we could argue, uh, from being an elder or a spiritual leader in the church. And I know that that could be a little bit of a straw man argument on Jesus. He's Jesus. He could do whatever he wants to do. Um, well, as long as it's God's will. Um, But 
that is one of the points that is made. But I think a stronger argument is that when you look up Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, for example, and we don't have time to go there, but it's, it's very interesting. It is there that the Apostle Paul, in answering some questions to the church in Corinth about marriage, emphasizes that he wishes that the men would stay single like he is so that they can just serve the Lord. Now, some religious organizations will camp on that and they don't let their leaders, spiritual leaders, get married at all. And there's a commitment to celibacy and they take it out of that passage. Well, that that is, a, I think, a, a mistaken end to the understanding of that passage. But the Apostle Paul is emphasizing there, and that's when he says, if you're married, you're going to care about the things of this world, like painting bathrooms. He doesn't say that, but painting bathrooms and putting tile down on kitchen floors and, and uh, cleaning the garage when you don't think it really needs clean because you have this wife. And so your world is just impacted. And Paul is just saying, look, the day is urgent. The gospel is needed. And if I had some guys who weren't married, you could really commit to the gospel. But clearly, marriage is God's plan. Clearly, he who finds a wife, Proverbs twenty two eighteen says, he who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. But my argument would be why, if the Apostle Paul is giving instruction to Titus and Timothy that you have to be married to serve in spiritual leadership, why in 1 Corinthians 7 would he contradict himself and say, I wish you wouldn't get married? That doesn't even make sense. So I don't think that that is a good argument, a valid argument for that point. I don't think that's what it means, husband of one wife. And you can look up 1 Corinthians 7, 6 through 8, chapter 7, 25 to 29. They're very interesting verses. Number two, and this would be the view that Fellowship Bible Church has traditionally held. It is that when we see that on the list, we see that uh, he's to be the husband of one wife, that that number two, this means that an elder or a deacon may have never been divorced in his past, may have never been divorced in his past. And this is the traditional view. This is the traditional view. We're going to build on this concept when we get to Matthew chapter 19. And if the Lord doesn't return, we will, Lord willing, get to Matthew 19. We're supposed to start 16 today. We're not that far away, and it is an extensive teaching of our Lord in Matthew 19 on divorce and remarriage. And we're going to take a time, we're going to take our time to look at what the Bible says about this topic when we get there. But suffice it to say this morning that one reason why I question this traditional view that a divorced man may never serve is that there are some allowances for divorce in Scripture. And I would take it that when that divorce does occur, there is, there is forgiveness to be found and complete restoration to be had. It is not an unpardonable sin. It is a sin with tentacles and residuals. And we'll keep mentioning that. But Matthew 19.9, for example, Jesus allowed an exception. He allowed an exception. And that was for sexual immorality. For fornication is the word, pornania. We get our English word pornography from that word. The marriage bed is so sacred that when it is violated, and there are circumstances where that restoration is so difficult to get that God, Christ, allowed for a divorce there. In the brokenness of the relationship. It is always to be our goal to seek reconciliation. The overriding command and instruction of scripture in relationships in the church of God between all people who love Christ is they are always to forgive. They are always to seek reconciliation. 
There are a no, and the divorce issue is one of those issues where there is no end to the case studies. Well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And on it goes. Suffice it to say this morning that, that Jesus made an exception when sexual sin enters the marriage to the point that the relationship is evidently unrecoverable. Secondly, I want you to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, the Apostle Paul there clearly says that when, if your husband or wife does not know Christ, and you do, and they desert you, and they want a divorce, and they leave you, you are then to let them go, and you are no longer bound. The Apostle Paul permits it. He permits release in certain situations. In 1 Corinthians 7, for example. Furthermore, I would argue just from simple logic... That to say husband of one wife means absolutely there could not have been a divorce in the past is not sound logic from the very point that if you are divorced and remarried, you're only married to one person. You are not in a polygamous relationship. You are not married to more than one person. Okay? You have... You do not have more than one spouse. Thirdly, some people use this reference in relation to remarriage forbidden after the death of a spouse. After the death of a spouse. But this simply is not the teaching of Scripture. Scripture is clear, and there are several references there. 1 Timothy 5.14, 1 Corinthians 7.39, Romans chapter 7, verses 1-3. through 3. Clearly, we are given release at the death of a spouse and allowed to remarry with God's blessing. It is a misunderstanding of Scripture to say that you can only be married one time. Um, That would disqualify you then from spiritual leadership if you have remarried even after the death of a spouse. The husband of one wife, you had a wife that died, see you now had two wives. That's not what he's talking about, I don't think at all. Fourthly, polygamy. Some believe that polygamy was the issue. Um, The short answer for this morning is that there's no real credible evidence that that was the issue. Some argue that Paul was was pointing out that on the island of Crete, that where Titus was to set things in order and to appoint elders in every town and community, that they were a polygamous people. And though there's evidence of some polygamy in this early first century Roman Empire spreading the culture of Ephesus, for example, promiscuity was so acceptable where a man could be married, but he could have open mistresses, that nobody practiced polygamy. They didn't need to for that reason. And so it wasn't Paul telling Titus and Timothy, make sure when you set up elders in the church that they have only been married one time and that they're not polygamous men. And this is a problem in some missionary contexts where they've gone into you know, tribal groups where, where polygamy is acceptable and they lead them to Christ. Now they have the aspect of a guy having seven wives. And what are they supposed to do? Well, I don't know. Ask Jim Shoopy. That's what I would do. <laughs> what I do believe it is speaking about. This is where we've come as an elder board to conclude. And I've taught this in the past from this pulpit that it is speaking, number five, to the fidelity, to the fidelity and character of the married man. You see, in the Greek, the New Testament was written in Greek, and when you literally translate that Greek phrase, it literally means a one-woman kind of a man, a one-woman man. This means that he is faithful and true 
to one woman. I think that Paul is less concerned about what happened in a sinful past or what might have happened with divorces in the past, but time has gone by. You've been restored. You're walking with the Lord. You're remarried. You can be above reproach and you are known to be faithful and true to your one wife. That's it. You're a one woman kind of a man. So why did Paul flip the page? Why did Paul begin with this quality? Well, I think that you would agree with me, wouldn't you? That to be above reproach means that this man must be a one woman kind of a man. How can a man who is loose with women, who is chasing women, or is known to be perverted in any area or driven by sexual desire, he's not above reproach. People hear about it. People know about it. And he would not be above reproach. Secondly, I would say that the Apostle Paul looks right to the home and immediately to the marriage to to credential a spiritual leader in the church because sexual misconduct and marital infidelity have done more damage to the cause of Christ and the local church than perhaps any other sin. And I think it's a huge issue. And so the Apostle Paul knows that if Satan is going to discredit a ministry, he's going to He's going to try to undermine the moral fidelity of the spiritual leaders' marriages and he's going to get them to fall into sin and succumb to the flesh. And let me very rapidly say, let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Let us be careful. I think it's appropriate to live with a terror of our own flesh. Of what we are capable of doing and what capacity we have to very quickly make decisions that are sinful and wrong. I was at our Bible conference in Springfield, Illinois, and I have a developing friendship with a pastor out of North Carolina, and he was telling me about the wife of a pastor from a very large church in the Midwest who has been arrested for having sexual relations with an underage girl, 16-year-old girl. He's going to serve a long prison sentence. It is a huge ministry. It is a well-known ministry. And his wife ended up in North Carolina with my friend in his church and trying to find a new life and trying to just hide out because they are very well-known people. This man fell, chose to sin. His wife stood with him, even arguing before the judge for a lesser sentence until she found out that this man was having liaison with his female attorney on the side. He's now in prison for a... What do you think that did to that church? What do you think that did to that ministry? What do you think the newspapers were talking about? You want to explode a ministry? You want to discredit the gospel? You want to undermine the work of Christ in a community? Then have spiritual leaders who are not characterized by fidelity. I believe that's what Paul's talking about. So let's very quickly talk about five essential reasons for the fidelity standard. Five essential reasons for the fidelity standard. Number one, it is essential for keeping the other qualifications. It is essential for keeping the other qualifications. Notice as you let your eyes look through the passage that this guy is to be self-controlled. He's to be sober-minded and respectable. He's to be gentle and not quarrelsome. In other words, I don't think it's possible to be lacking fidelity and have the other aspects of your home in order. I once was reading a book about leadership and and this book on leadership was talking about a guy who is a consultant who is brought in 
to corporate organizations and private companies to assess why they are on a downtrend. So a company's been moving along well, and then all of a sudden it's on a downtrend. They hire an outside consultant to come in and scrutinize the company and say, look, we're just not as productive as we've been. What's going on here? And the very first thing the consultant does every time is to try to discern what condition the, the CEO's marriage is in. And, and they said it is amazing how often when the company's on the downtrend, they find out right away when they're in their research that the, the CEO's having an affair and his life is out of order. You see, you cannot have other parts of your world meet the standard of spiritual criteria for service in the local church if you're not pure in your home front with your marriage. It's not going to work. And so it is essential for keeping the other qualifications. Number two, it is essential for guarding the church's reputation. It is essential for guarding the church's reputation. And I've already spoken to that point and illustrated it. Number three, it is essential for the winning over temptation. It is essential for the winning over temptation. Why did the Apostle Paul say elders and deacons and spiritual leaders in the church and pastors must be men of fidelity because they are to be men who win over temptation? A one-woman kind of a man understands moral purity and self-control. He knows how to live within boundaries. He knows how to live within boundaries. I don't think anyone here would raise their hand and say... Yeah, I have no problem with my elders and deacons, you know, catting around a little bit, being unfaithful to their wives. That's no problem. I don't need self-control to be one of the dynamics of my pastor. Are you kidding me? And you're watching and, and you're wanting to emulate and you're wanting to tell your young children, be like him, be like her. You're wanting to watch models. And if ever there's an era of time where our young people need models for good marriage, it's today even to help them define why marriage is put down in Scripture the way it is. Proverbs 25, 28 says, Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. That is not a competent spiritual leader. And didn't Jim Shupe hit it out of the park on June 5th with that message on boundaries from Proverbs 25, 28? And I put the address in there so you can re-click on and listen. It was an outstanding message. I was able, though I was on vacation, I slipped in and I sat in the back in this third service. What a good message and I thanked him for it. And it's a good reminder. You can click on and listen. Number four, it is essential for limiting the imagination. Fidelity means that your imagination is under control. Exodus 20.14 says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Exodus 20.17 says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Listen, sins of sexuality are sins that take root in the mind. They take root in the mind. You cannot commit adultery if you haven't already coveted. It starts in the mind and it ends up somewhere where it should never have been. And so fidelity is part of the whole purpose of having men whose minds are pure. We need a bunch of elders who are dirty old men leading our church. That's ridiculous. Oh, but they don't have any divorces. I don't care. How, oh, I do care. Don't get me wrong. But I care a whole lot more about their fidelity and their reputation. Fifthly, it is essential for modeling to the next generation, and I've referenced that. It is essential to modeling to the next generation. What does it do to the spiritual convictions of young people when church leaders fail morally? It is devastating. 
And by the way, millennials are unbelievable at living contradictory lives. They themselves might have multiple partners going at the same time out of marriage, living in promiscuity, but the second an elder or a deacon does something that they're doing regularly or in the party scene, they will walk away from the church in a heartbeat and say, he doesn't deserve to be there. Well, at least I admit what I'm doing. Young people spot hypocrites. They can smell a hypocrite a mile away. But so can adults. And this is an area that there can be no hypocrisy in the church. It's essential for modeling to the next generation. Qualified church leadership begins in the home. It's absolutely logical, isn't it? It totally makes sense that the Apostle Paul would tell young Timothy and young Titus, when you're setting up spiritual leaders, watch their home front, watch their marriage, and see what's going on. And those are the guys that meet muster there who can qualify to be a spiritual leader in the church. Marital faithfulness is every man's priority, though, isn't it? Marital faithfulness is every man's priority. And this is such an important topic. We, we do not have the time, <clears throat> excuse me, to expand further. Let's draw a conclusion and we'll pray and be on our way. Thank you for your patience. Can a man with a divorce in his history serve in church leadership? This is what we wrote about in our paper. The second paragraph says it is the position of the elder board of the Fellowship Bible Church that this phrase, husband of one wife, is not about one's marital history, but rather speaks directly to the present condition of one's moral character and fidelity towards his wife. It goes on there, but that would be a shift. It would be a new way. We, we are not holding to the traditional view of conservative fundamental Bible churches necessarily. We're not alone in this. We're not being mavericks. We're trying to deal biblically with it and carefully. So I would say, number one, it is not forbidden at this point. It is not forbidden on this point of husband of one wife. You cannot argue husband of one wife means there cannot be a divorce. However, I think there is a question about is he above reproach? And that's another whole question. Is he above reproach? That's huge. Because divorce is one of those sins that seems to just have a whole bunch of baggage, like, like a string full of tin cans behind a newlyweds car going down the road, clanking and stuff, and you keep looking in your rearview mirror and there's just a bunch of junk that keeps following you around. Divorce tends to do that. But it doesn't mean that there aren't men who've been faithfully married for years, sometimes decades, who love their wife and have been remarried for decades even, and that they can be held up as models of men of fidelity and faithfulness and commitment. But are they above reproach? This applies also, notice verse 7 in chapter 3, not only inside the walls of the church, but it applies outside the walls of the church. When it says outsiders in verse 7, it's talking about the community at large where you live. Are you above reproach? Number two, does his life, godliness, and marital fidelity silence any critics? That's the kind of man we're talking about. Somebody wants to squack, but oh, but he's got a divorce, and he has a divorce. But that guy's reputation, his fidelity and commitment and godliness to his wife will silence the critics. Time and testimony are huge factors on this topic. Time and testimony 
How long has it been? And what is that individual's testimony? Is he known as a man who loves his wife? I love the story, I think it's true, of Winston Churchill, the great World War II leader from Great Britain, who was at a big banquet hall, and for entertainment among the guests, the host had introduced a game that they were playing around the table, and it was to start at the head of the table and move around, and you were to say who you would like to be if you could come back in another life. And so they had a lot of fun and laughter and people were saying who they would like to be if they came back. And it came around the table and when it was Winston Churchill's time, he reached over and took Lady Churchill's hand and held it up. And he said, if I could come back in another life, I would choose to be Lady Churchill's second husband. Is that a great answer? I'd have probably been saying something like Clint Eastwood or something. You know? It's like, what a moron and missed the moment. I would like to be Lady Churchill's second husband. I just really love this woman. She's my wife. That's the kind of guy Paul's talking about. It's what he's talking about. Time and testimony are huge factors. Finally, appointment to spiritual leadership is, and it continues to be, and this is a very serious matter, subjective in a case-by-case matter. You pray for the elder leadership here. It is, a, it is a fearsome thing. It'll make you tremble to have to wake up in the morning, go about your job, show up at church later for an elders meeting, and your job is to say who's qualified for spiritual leadership and who's not. Who do you think you are? Well, you're the elders of the church, and that's what you're called to do. And that's why you have to qualify for this position. And that's why fidelity in your marriage is so, so significant. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, in talking about the spiritual leadership of the church, it talks about imitating his life and his doctrine. I think a great question about being above reproach, whether you have a divorce in the past or not, is your life right now today above reproach? And is your life and doctrine worth Imitating. That'll tell the world a lot about you right there. Will you stand with me, please? Let's bow together in prayer. Thank you for your good listening patience today. These yellow documents are out on the table in the foyer and in the foyer annex in Iraq. But for now, Lord, we turn to you. Grateful for our church grateful for the instruction of your word, grateful for the gospel, grateful for the cross where we find forgiveness of all sin and the blood of Christ covers all sin. Father, would you just bless our leadership with discernment here? And would you always and only preserve us by having men in leadership who are men of fidelity, whose homes are in order and whose life and doctrine is worth imitating? Father, would you challenge the young men of this church to love their wives faithfully and soundly to fight against the world and the flesh? Would you help our young ladies and their parents to grow up with a watchful eye for that young man who has self-control and knows how to have have boundaries and knows how to tend the gates of his life? Would you bless our young people with strong, sound, sexually pure marriages, Lord? 
We commit ourselves to the obedience of your word. And we look for your blessing on our church. Keep us as we go for another week. We ask your blessing on day camp. All the events of the day. Cover us. Cover us as a church. Cover us as families. Cover us as a community. We need it. We'll count on it. In Jesus' name, amen.